We're going to uh, start a new book this morning. We're going to move into the New Testament and uh, look at Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Um, so in preparation for what the Lord has for us, let's just bow our hearts as we come before his word now. Father, we just give you this study. We pray now that you speak to us. Lord, we want to hear from you. And Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, that is here to equip us and teach us and Lord, help us in every aspect of our lives. But Lord, most importantly, your word reveals Jesus. And we want to understand and know our Savior better. We want to please him by the way that we walk. And Father, we want to walk in by faith, Lord, not by, by sight. So help us as we go through this study, just to see more of you. Lord, speak to us, we pray. Give me the words. And Lord, give us, Lord, open hearts and ears that are ready to hear what you have for us. And so Lord, we just commit this whole study to you. But Father, for this morning, just ask your blessing now that your spirit would teach us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's just uh, have a quick look at some background information um, before we move into chapter one, which is what we're going to look at this morning. Well, first thing to kind of highlight, to mention, is that out of the 27 books in the New Testament, 13 were written by Paul. If Paul wrote Hebrews, then that makes 14 as well. Uh, and there's a question mark over that. Uh, may well have been the case. But certainly 13, we have Paul's signature on, uh, as written by Paul. So, uh, And actually, if you look at the book of Acts as well, which was written by Dr. Luke, um, 17 of the 28 chapters in the book of Acts also deal with Paul. So, so much of what we understand about the New Testament, about the church, and all of these things has come through um, from Paul. Um, in fact, from Acts 15 onwards, no other apostles are even mentioned. It's all about Paul from that point on in the book of Acts. You see, without Paul's letters, we wouldn't understand the church as the body of Christ. It's Paul that reveals these things to us. He explains the function of the church, the activity, and the destiny of the church. There's some things that often we may kind of take for granted, we're kind of familiar with a lot of these themes, but really this one individual was entrusted with so much to impart to us. And Paul specifically was chosen by God, now for a number of reasons, but not least because of the fact that he had this zeal and knowledge of the law of Moses. You know, he grew up as a a Jew, and we'll look at some of these things in a while, and had a great understanding of the law. And it makes him an ideal candidate then to unpack all the things that the law reveals and even the purpose of the law. And one of the things that we see in the book of Galatians laid out for us is the real purpose that God gave the law in the first place. So the epistle to the Galatians actually is regarded as probably one of Paul's greatest and most important letters. Now, it's hard in a sense to differentiate because they're all important. They all carry so much weight and there's so much teaching and instruction and doctrine there. But Galatians really is, in many ways, very very pivotal. It's been characterized by some as kind of a short Romans. Romans almost kind of expands what we have in Galatians. Um, so if you're looking at Romans, you'll see a lot of similar themes to that which Paul will address in Galatians, but there's more detail given in Romans. Dr. Merrill Tenney said this, Few books have had a more profound influence on the history of mankind than as this small tract, for such it should be called. Christianity might have just been one more Jewish sect, and the thought of a Western world might have been entirely pagan had it never been written. That's quite a statement. You know, this book, as we'll see, really differentiates Christianity from Judaism. It shows that there is a marked difference between the two. 
He carries on. This is Galatians embodies the germinal teaching on Christian freedom, which separated Christianity from Judaism and which launched it upon a career of missionary conquest. It was the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation because its teaching of salvation by grace alone became the dominant theme of the preaching of the Reformers. William Ramsey says this, uh, It's a unique and marvellous letter which embraces in its six short chapters such a variety of venom and intense emotion as could probably not be paralleled in any other work. I think that's quite a, a bold statement. And we're going to see that really there's a lot of passion that comes through as Paul delivers this letter, this epistle. Just so we kind of understand what we're looking at, Galatia is not a church as such, it's an area. Uh, If you look on the map, we've got obviously Italy, we recognise Greece, the Mediterranean Sea, Israel over this side, and then this area which is in modern day Turkey is the area where Galatia sits. Now there was an area known as North Galatia and South Galatia, now most commentators and scholars feel that this letter is written to the churches in this area here that Paul dealt with on his first missionary journey, so this whole whole area here. If we look at the background again of Paul's first missionary journey, you see how it all kind of unfolded. First of all, Paul leaves from Antioch uh, with Barnabas. They set out, they sail sail across to Cyprus. Uh, John Mark is with them initially. On the island of Cyprus, they encounter this uh, individual Bar-Jesus, a false prophet. He's a friend of the governor. Um, he's struck blind as a result of uh, uh, their meetings, meeting with Paul. And then as a result of that, the governor also becomes a believer. Uh, they walk, and again, bear in mind that Paul doesn't hop in a car and, or a train. This is all by foot. Uh, they travel across the other end of Cyprus, and they sail from Paphros, and they go across to the mainland, arriving on the, the coast. Uh, and then they go from there. John Mark leaves them at this point. There's a dispute. And if you remember, that becomes an issue of contention later with Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas wants to take John Mark with him on a secondary visit. And Paul says no. Um, so Paul ends up on his second missionary journey going out with Silas instead. Then they travel off in the mainland. As Paul's going, he starts to stir up opposition from the Jews. It's the Jews that really object to the things that Paul is saying, thinking that he's trying to change the, the, the Jewish law, trying to bring in some new doctrine or, as far as they're concerned, some heretical teaching. He ends up at Antioch. There's two Antiochs. We've got this one here, which is the one that we tend to refer to most frequently. Uh, this is the one in kind of Syria area. Uh, and this is really becomes the, the headquarters of the church. After the church, through the persecution, leaves Jerusalem, uh, they end up really making Antioch kind of their home. Home. Um, but there's another Antioch up here, and Paul stays there for a while, and it's only because of the persecution uh, and a plot that they find against their lives that they end up fleeing and they move down into this area. And this is the bit we're interested in, because this now is the area of Galatia. As they come first of all to Iconium, and there onto Lystra, Paul heals a cripple. Interestingly, as a result of that, they're hailed as gods. And of course, they try and quickly kind of put that down and say, no, no, we're not gods, we're serving God. Um, but then other people that have come down from Antioch, enemies arrive, and then they come to Iconium and they follow them there. They're almost killed. They flee to Derbury from there, and many more disciples are one, including a young man by the name of Timothy, who eventually would join Paul in his later journeys. Uh, well, from that point, they then travel back. And this is amazing, because Paul has encountered so much persecution, death threats, being dragged out of the city, almost left for dead. Some people think he did die, and the Lord raised him again. Um, but either way, rather than just fleeing, we're going from that point, they could have come back around the mainland through Tarsus, where Paul had come from, back to Antioch, but they go back 
to those churches, wanting to encourage and strengthen them again. And then eventually they make it all the way back to Antioch, and they come and bring this report to the congregation. And as I said before, when we have a sharing time at the beginning of our services, it's very much that same kind of vein. You know, as we go out into the world during the week, we encounter all sorts of things. And it's encouraging that we come and share what the Lord has been doing. Certainly the church at Antioch were encouraged as Paul arrives back. This letter that Paul writes to the Galatian believers is to this group of churches in here. So typically, Iconium, Lystra and Derbury are in the main churches uh, in that region that Paul is writing to. Now... As we get into the letter, we start to find that Paul is really addressing a problem that's been brought to his attention. And quite simply, there were Jews who were there who had tried to mix the simple message of grace that Paul had been preaching with the law. That they've been blending improperly the kingdom message and the church message. Now, this is so applicable even today because we've got exactly the same thing going on. People get very confused between the kingdom message and the church message. John the Baptist came teaching a different message to the one that Paul taught. Even in the Gospels, the things that Jesus said were very often related to the kingdom, not the church. And it's really important as Christians that we understand this distinction. Otherwise, we can get very confused on a number of quite important issues. I'll unpack more as we go through. Firstly, these Jews were teaching that a person was saved by faith and by keeping the law. So they were kind of merging Christianity. And of course, we see the same thing creeping into segments of the church even today. And they wanted the believers to follow the Jewish laws and customs. And again, those teachers were setting the people in Galatia. And this is really what Paul starts to write to address. Funny enough, we've got numbers of groups of churches today that have almost gone back into Judaism. You know, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, drawing from the examples we have in the Torah, in the law, looking at the Jewish feasts and seeing the merit. But you see, the feasts and things should all point to Jesus. And sadly, a lot of believers end up starting with Jesus and then they kind of end up going back to the feasts and trying to celebrate the feasts and so on. And like it's not a problem if you want to celebrate the Jewish feast, but really what's the purpose of it? The purpose is that you're pointing to Jesus. All those things pointed to Jesus in the first place. You see, the only gospel that God approves of and blesses is the gospel of the grace of God. It's justification by faith in Christ Jesus alone. And anything you do cannot add to it. In fact, anything you do becomes an affront to God. Because God has made it such that our salvation is based upon his grace and nothing else. And you can't add to it. You see, we're not saved by making promises to God, but by believing the promises that he's made to us. It's as simple as that. You know, as so many believers have this kind of uh, zeal, and by the way, zeal is not a spiritual gift. And very often where you find zeal, you often find error and all sorts of problems creep in as well. Zeal is, is not necessarily a good thing. And you know, people want to do things for God. Now, James makes it very clear that if we have faith, that faith should be evidenced by our works. So this should be a natural following on. That our faith is shown to be genuine and true because we will do things. But we do things out of love. 
Because our hearts have been stirred. Not because we feel we've got to do something. Not because we've got to attain some standard. Not because we've got to try and make ourselves feel better that we're receiving this blessing from God and trying to almost make ourselves worthy to receive it. And this is an error that a lot of Christians fall into. We'll come back to this more as we go through in a moment. So these legal men, these uh, Judaizers as they were referred to, comes from a Latin word uh, meaning to uh, be or live like a Jew. That was the, the implication. These Judaizers were trying to get people back under the law. And really that kind of phrase, that Judaizers, it's a religious designation. It's nothing to do nationally as such. Um, and their fundamental belief was that the Galatians should live like Jews. Now, I want you to understand that so many of the problems and heresies that have crept into the church through the years haven't been through malicious uh, intent to try and derail Christianity. They've come from people who are genuine and sincere. But people can be sincere and be wrong unless it's rooted in scripture. And we need to be very, very cautious. Just because somebody is sincere, just because somebody is genuine, doesn't make them right if it's not in accord with scripture. And these individuals here, they wanted the Christians to be under the Mosaic law and to follow the traditions and so on that they'd uh, grown up with and become accustomed to. Again, they had very good intentions. They weren't necessarily wicked. You see, for them it was very much a matter of principle. And you're going to understand, if you think about it from their perspective, you see, it was one thing to preach grace to Jews who had their background, a religious background. The idea was that they'd been righteous. That's the way they saw themselves. But it was quite another thing to preach, to preach this gospel of grace to a mixture of Jews and Greeks and Syrians and almost anybody that would come. And especially why that's taking place in a Jewish synagogue. Because bear in mind, when Paul went out on his missionary journeys, most of the time he would go first of all to the synagogues. He would go to the Jews. And many were being converted within these synagogues. And suddenly within these sacred places for the Jews, there's this message coming in that is saying you don't need to do all those things that are under the law. And you can see why they were offended by it. You see, the Jew knew very well what they had to do. There was circumcision, it was seen as the glory of Israel, the pride of Judaism, with its one God and high morality. What did the Gentile have in comparison as far as they were concerned? Well, they looked at Gentiles as being dogs. I mean, it's said that the Jews saw Gentiles as being just fueled for the fires of hell. That's the way they perceived Gentiles. And the Gentiles had their false gods. They were into fornication, immorality, drunkenness, and all sorts of other things. And so to suddenly say that these Gentiles now can be part of your group, for the Jews, they really were troubled by this. They took for granted that a Gentile if he became a Jew, would be just like it had been, that they'd have to become a proselyte, convert to Judaism, then you could become a Christian. That was their mindset. This is the problem that Paul is going to address. Now, that actually had already led to a council meeting by the apostles in Jerusalem, which we read about in Acts chapter 15. It's interesting because at that meeting, it's uh, Peter that ends up speaking and he says now therefore why tempt you God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear so 
really just getting straight to the point, Peter says, look, we couldn't keep the standard of the law. Why are we now asking these Gentiles to keep that standard? And then notice this wonderful inversion that Peter brings. He says, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they are. Saying that the Gentiles are saved purely by grace. And you know what? We can be saved by grace. Saying that as a Jew, we don't have to now be under the confines of the law. And kind of twist the whole thing around for them. Well, Paul made it plain that the gospel is not an addendum, an addition to Judaism. It's not a supplement to the law. But rather, it's the end and fulfillment of the law. And actually, it's the antithesis to it. The new kingdom would go beyond the boundaries of Israel, not just nationally, but also theologically and socially. Even though Jesus the Messiah came from David's line, we're told in Acts thirteen thirty nine that now everyone that believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You know, Moses' law could not solve the problem of sin. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews makes very clear, that they have to keep offering year after year after year sacrifices to atone for sin. And even then, it can't purge the conscience. But Jesus' offering, Jesus' sacrifice, is so much better because it purges the conscience. Jesus deals with sin. You see, Paul makes it clear that it's not a, a both and, it's an either or. You can't be a Jew and a, under the, the Jewish legal religious system and a Christian. It's either or. See, the choice is either grace or law. It's faith or works. It's either Moses or Christ. You see, grace excludes all works. There's a great example we have in that um, parable that Jesus gives in Matthew 18. Of the, the man who owes this debt to the king, and the king eventually, because he pleads, lets him off. And then he goes and finds somebody who owes him just a few pence. And he, he kind of wants to get out of this in the other individual what's owed to him. And when the king finds out, he talk, commands him to be sold and all that he has, and, and he ends up losing everything. You know, that individual was happy to receive grace, but didn't want to extend grace. And really the message of that is, if you want to live under the law, you'll be judged by the law. If you live under grace, then you'll be judged under grace. And of course that means for us that Christ has paid for our sin completely. See, grace is effectively God's answer to man's pride. And this is why the gospel is offensive. The the, the real offense of the gospel is not because people don't want to hear about Jesus. That's not it, because actually a lot of people want to hear about Jesus. If you strike up a conversation with people, many people are quite happy to listen about Jesus. A lot of people are put off by the church, but a lot of people want to hear about Jesus. I'm sure if you've had conversations, people actually are quite inquisitive. No, people are offended because the gospel says that you cannot do anything to earn your salvation. You just accept it. You know, none of us like to be given things in that sense. You know, that we all have this kind of, um, well, you know, somebody offers you something, oh, let me give you something for that. Well, the moment you give somebody something from it, it's no longer a gift. And actually, it's kind of offensive to the one that was trying to offer you a gift. So good works 
do not make a good man. A good man does good works. You see, there's kind of a, a reverse there. You see, just by doing good things, it doesn't make you good. But actually, if you are good, then naturally you'll do good things. And that's really the point that James makes. So this false teaching that was coming in was really substituting the law for grace. One commentator said that there's something about error when it once grips the mind that makes it assume an importance that the truth itself never had. I quite like that because sometimes people go off on all these tangents and they get very, very intense about the position they've adopted. And sometimes they, they, you don't find that kind of zeal for the truth. You could look at that actually in regard to some of the world religions. And you see how zealous people are for their particular belief or faith. I mean, you can see it even looking back through the history of the church. Look at the Catholic church and how zealous people were. The things that people would do, crawl for miles on their knees. You know, and inflict all sorts of pain to their bodies in the the belief that that some way was pleasing to God. And again, you see, see the zeal that other faiths have, the the rituals they go through, the intensity that they observe. And yet, sometimes you find those that actually know the truth don't have that same kind of zeal. See, legalism always seems to take the heart out of Christianity and replaces it with a heart of stone. Almost immovable, unwilling to listen very often. The heart of Christianity is God's free grace in Jesus Christ. You know, let the law do the honourable work of showing a man his sin, but he can't save man from sin. That's what we'll see, and Paul will explain this to us, the purpose of the law, to show that we're sinners. That's what the law does. It confines all under sin. It shows that we need a saviour. All the law will do is leave a man helpless. But interestingly, we find that in the writings of Paul, and particularly in this letter to the Galatians, the Mosaic law is neither discredited or despised or disregarded. In fact, his majesty, perfection, and demands of fullness and purpose are all maintained. You see, the law is God's standard. It's God's righteous standard. And of course, if you could keep the law, you would be right with God. It's, you know, sometimes you can uh, cause the other believers just to look at you with a little bit of concern if you say that there are two ways to heaven. Either through the law or through Jesus Christ. If you could keep the law and all of its requirements, well then you'd be righteous. Of course the problem is, you start at a disadvantage because you start with sin, so already you're in that problem that you can't keep the law. So there is, of course, only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. But if it were possible to keep all of the law, that is God's righteous standard. But interestingly, all of those qualities about the law make it utterly impossible for man to come to God by that route. And this is what we see with this wonderful gospel of grace, that another way is open for man to be justified before God, and a way that entirely bypasses the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. And this route, of course, is by faith. And that's again where this offence comes in. It's like, but what do I have to do? No, you don't have to do anything. Justification by faith is the theme 
And again, the emphasis being on faith. Well, there's a number of things we can point to why this is so relevant today, and we'll hit a number of these as we go through. Uh, Chuck Misler makes a comment, he says, Galatians is God's strongest word against legalism. And you'll see that as you go through it, it really is. You see, the flesh loves to do religious things. And you and I are no different than this. And if we sit here this morning thinking, oh, we, we've got this all right. You know, suddenly you realise, actually, we make the same mistake that the Galatian Christians made. And these Judaizers amongst the Galatians. You see, they wanted to celebrate holy days. They felt that was something that God would be pleased with. Practicing various rituals. Attempting to do good works for God. And the big one, justify our worthiness for salvation. And we do that. Sometimes we don't even think about doing it, but we often do that. Yeah. I don't know whether you sometimes, on a Sunday, you get up and you think, oh, going to church today, oh, better read my Bible before I go. Just in case somebody spots that, you know, I haven't been where I should have been with God during this week. Or, you know, before you go to a, a Christian meeting of any kind of shape or whatever, that you think, maybe I should pray before I go. Why do you do those things? Well, you do it because you think that will put you in better standing. You think that somehow that gives you a better, well, degree of worthiness. That's not how it works. You see, you need God's grace the whole time. This is the wonderful truth that comes. And this is why when we understand the message that Galatians teaches us, it gives us such a freedom and liberty. Again, many of the religious systems today mix up law and grace and they present this garbled, confused way of salvation, which is actually just a way of bondage. And we'll see that in some of the passages that we'll look at in the coming weeks. The idea of keeping the Sabbath. And there are some Christians that still think that is something we should do. Dietary laws. An earthly priesthood. Holy days, obeying rules, doing things. Again, the same kind of things. People think those things are important. They think those things will give them some sort of standing with God. Well, all of those are swept away in Galatians and replaced by this glorious liberty that the believer has through faith in Christ. Now, just an interesting aside. When was this book written? Well, we've already said already, it was probably one of the first of Paul's letters that were written. Um, we know it was at least 17 years after his conversion, conversion in AD 32, around about uh, that time, just after Jesus had been risen, Paul's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians there, uh, and he sees, he sees Jesus, this wonderful vision that he sees. Um, we're told of a three year period, followed by another 14 years, um, and that then we get this conference in Jerusalem, which occurs around about 1849, and then we have Peter's visit to Antioch, because uh, Paul will refer to that, so we know that Galatians is written after that time. And then there's a uh, the letter to the Thessalonians seems to predate this one is sent from Corinth. Now, Galatians must be written after that point. Now, it was either written from Corinth on Paul's second missionary journey, where Paul stayed for quite a long time, or it was written from Ephesus again on the third missionary journey, which was during his two years of residence there. Now, the reason I'm just highlighting the timing is because I want to emphasize the fact that either way, this is not a knee-jerk, reactionary response. Because whether Paul wrote this from Corinth or from Ephesus, in either case, 
He was in somewhere where he was staying for a while. He had time to sit and to think. It wasn't on a journey somewhere and he was stopping over and he quickly penned this one line and sent it off. This is something that Paul was in a settled state at that time. And so this isn't just a reactionary response. This is a very considered admonition that Paul is writing. Now, there are some distinctives that mark this uh, letter from the others that Paul writes. Key differences. Firstly, this is a very stern, severe and solemn message. Uh, we don't find that with the others. It's very much a kind of rebuke in a sense. And the Galatian believers were in this real kind of grave peril because of the foundations of their faith being shaken by these Judaizers. Uh, and this epistle contains no word of commendation, praise or thanksgiving, like most of other, the others of Paul. There's no request for prayer or for the ongoing work of the ministry. Paul really here is targeting a very specific problem. And there's nobody mentioned by name with him. In the other letters of Paul, you'll find that he speaks of others who are traveling, his, his companions that are with him, and he sends greetings from them also. Not so here. This is very much uh, a troubleshooting letter, going in to do a job, to deal with a particular problem. Um, in this epistle again, we see the heart of Paul. Just really laid out. There's a lot of emotion and strong feeling that comes through. Um, it's interesting because, of course, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul speaks there about love. Our love is so important. He speaks of, you know, almost anything else you can do, if it's not done in love, as he says, you become uh, just a clanging symbol, just a noise. But this is the one who's written that, and may well have written this letter from Corinth when he's thinking of some of those things he wrote to the Corinthian believers. You know, the one who says how important love is shows absolutely zero tolerance for this issue. You know, I, I guarantee you there have been people in Galatia that when this letter arrived were going, huh, who does Paul think he is? Calls himself a Christian. Where's the love? And you see, there's some things we have to accept, have to be dealt with. You know, doctors have a duty of care. But if they find something that's a problem, something malignant within our physical frame, they have to deal with it. You know, if you in any way have poison from a bite from an insect or whatever else that has to be dealt with you have to get that out of the system you can't leave it and sometimes it's painful and that's very much what Paul's doing here and it's because he loves that he addresses these things you see, as far as Paul is concerned, this whole legalism and distortion of the gospel had to be silenced. It wasn't something, well, does it really matter? Yes, it does matter. See, the epistle to the Romans, it's been said, comes from the head of Paul. It's a very intellectual, very kind of um, considered, logical approach that Paul gives. Whereas the epistle to the Galatians very much comes from the heart of Paul. <clears throat> Another one of the distinctives that marks this from his other letters uh, is this kind of... Declaration of freedom from legalism. 
and very, very clearly uh, defined in this, this letter we see. It was actually Martin Luther's favourite epistle. He said that this is my epistle. I'm wedded to it. Uh, he likened it to his wife because he loved what this uh, little epistle, this six-chapter book as we have it, uh, said. Chuck Minister makes a comment. He says, it was the masthead of the Reformation. It has been called the Magna Carta of the early church. It is the manifesto of Christian liberty, the impregnable citadel and veritable Gibraltar against any attack on the heart of the gospel. Finally, Galatians is the strongest declaration and defense of the doctrine of justification by faith, either within or outside of scripture. There is nothing more powerful than this short book to to lay out this doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's God's polemic on behalf of the most vital truth of the Christian faith against any attack. Not only is a sinner saved by grace through faith, plus nothing, but also the saved sinner lives by that same grace. You see, we're told in Acts 20.32, Acts 26.18 and elsewhere, that we are sanctified by grace. Now that's another area that a lot of Christians struggle with, because some will accept and believe that we're saved by grace. We praise the Lord for that. And then we try and make New Year's resolutions. And we try and make all these kind of commitments and promises of how we are then going to be better as Christians. You know, this year I'm going to, I'm going to be a better Christian. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. And we kind of make all those little gestures in a sense, coming again from a, a heart that's sincere. But we've come, come to the place of realizing that we can't do it. You need grace. You need God's grace to live the life that God has caused to live. Why, why is all of that? Well, because that way God gets the glory. You see, that's the whole point of all of this, that God has given us this wonderful gospel of grace so that Jesus Christ is the one that's glorified. None of us will be able to stand before the throne in heaven and boast of how we walked so worthily. Although, actually, we we were a pretty good Christian. None of us will be able to boast that. This kind of just leads on to this uh, phrase, this expression, which I quite like and just unpack quickly. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. These are three kind of tenses of salvation in a sense. So we've got the past tense, which is speaking of our justification, the separation from the penalty of sin. We have been saved. Job done. Can't add to that. But also, the present tense, which is we're being sanctified, set apart for God, which means we're being separated from the power of sin. And then finally, the future tense, which some commentators and theologians refer to as our glorification. This is a separation eventually from the presence of sin, when we're removed from this world. Those three things, important to understand, that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. If you're a believer and you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you've been saved from the penalty of sin. But we are being saved from the power of sin. And that is what the Lord is continuing to do in our lives. As we are transformed more and more into his likeness. He who has begun a good work will continue it. You notice, it's not that you who have decided, it's he who has begun the good work. So, justification is for us. Sanctification is in us. Justification declares the sinner righteous. 
Sanctification makes the sinner righteous. You see, we have that wonderful declaration on the cross as Jesus cries out, it is finished, it's paid in full. The Greek word is to die. paid in full. Our sin is paid for. But now, no longer are we to be judged for that sin, but now what's happening is because we still sin, and we know we still sin, John makes that clear in First John, if we say we have no sin, etc., we deceive ourselves. Well, what sanctification does is what the Lord is working through us is to make us righteous, right with God. And justification removes the guilt and the penalty of sin. But sanctification removes the growth and the power of sin. So you see these two elements of it and how important it is that we kind of understand that we need to be living by grace in regard to our walk as well as just relying on it for our salvation. So again, justification, the gift from God of everlasting life received by faith alone in Christ alone. Sanctification is that progressive work that involves the faith and the works of the believer. And then glorification is the result of the previous aspects. And we finally come to that place as we're taken from this world to be with Christ, with our resurrected bodies. Just a very quick outline of the book before we get into the text. Really, the first two chapters give us the authenticity of the gospel, and Paul will lay out his credentials there. Chapters 3 and 4, the superiority of the gospel, and then finally, the true liberty of the gospel in chapters 5 and 6. So we'll see this as we go through over the coming weeks. Another way you can see it, the first two chapters very much are a personal thing from Paul. Then we get into the doctrinal uh, elements in chapters 3 and 4, and then the practical elements in chapters 5 and 6. You can break it down in various ways. Okay, let's just go through. It's going to be a very short chapter, um, but some important things to pull out as we go through. So Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. First of all, Paul points out that he's an apostle. That's one sent by God. This is a personal commission that God had given him. And the idea is, I mean, Paul often refers to himself elsewhere as a bond slave. But he's been appointed by God. This is something that he hasn't chosen for himself. This is something that God had called him to. And notice, an apostle, not of man, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ. I was listening to a commentary by Chuck Smith during the week. And he said that after many years of ministry he's come to the realisation that ordination by man is utterly worthless. I quite like that. Because there's so many people that pay so much story in ordination. And there's a whole debate about you know ordination of you know bishops, women bishops and all these other kind of things. Really it's just the wrong argument to be having. The ordination issue is did God ordain? Because if God hasn't ordained, it doesn't matter what man does. Man can ratify something that God has done, certainly. But ordination comes from God. And Paul was ordained, not of man, but by Jesus. That's where the ordination needs to come from. That's where your authority comes from. And God the Father, who raised him from the dead. <clears throat> Notice here as well. And the emphasis on raised from the dead. That's the basis of our faith. I mean, this is what Paul will hammer so much in 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection. This is the root of what we believe. This is the thing that separates Christianity from any other faith or religion or belief. That the one that we love, worship and serve rose from the dead. 
central to the message of the gospel. So Paul's aim straight away here was to show that his message and ministry came directly from Christ. It's not of man. Paul didn't preach a second-hand message. He hadn't learned it from Peter or the other apostles or anybody else. This is something that God had given him. God took every measure necessary to keep Paul's ministry separate from the twelve. It's interesting how little contact Paul seems to have with the other twelve, lest seemingly anyone would think that Paul's ministry had been given to him by the other apostles. No, this is something that comes directly from Jesus. He hadn't learned it from someone else. He carries on and says, and all the brethren which are with me. Now he doesn't mention any by name, but he mentions that other brethren are with me. Unto the churches, plural, of Galatia. So as we looked earlier, those are the churches that Paul is now writing to. And he says, grace be unto you. That's the first thing. Now, grace, interestingly, is a Greek greeting. It comes from the Greek word charis. And it's just simply, in the New Testament, understanding of grace is unmerited favour. But at that time, it was also just a general greeting in the Greek. And he says, grace to you and peace. Now, peace being a Hebrew greeting, shalom. So, joining the two together quite nicely. Um, but the important thing here is that he puts grace before he puts peace. Because you can't have peace if you don't have grace. You have to have God giving you something that you could never have earned. Ultimately, forgiveness of sin and salvation in Jesus, if we are to really have peace. He says, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. And notice, speaking of Jesus, that gave himself for our sins. Now, this is already Paul starting to get into the theme that he's going to unpack here, because there's nothing that we can add, there's nothing greater than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. There is nothing that you can do you can get up at four o'clock in the morning and spend, you know, six hours in prayer before you go out into your day. It won't make you any more righteous. Because Jesus gave himself for our sins. And there is nothing you can do or find or give that is of higher value than that. And notice again, the reason that he gave himself for our sins was to deliver us from this present evil world. So that's the purpose of God's grace. It's to set us apart to deliver us. Not just to save us from our sins. You know, if Jesus had died and saved us and said, off you go, we'd have still been in a pickle. Because we need his grace to live. And notice again, this is God's will. It's the will of God and our Father. So that's the the source of God's grace. Just, Paul adds, just even thinking of that, and we could spend really a whole morning, I mean, Spurgeon, no doubt, would come to preach about six sermons just on those words we have there. You know, you could make a sermon of who gave himself. You could make a whole sermon out of for our sins. And then he says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, just as you start to meditate on scripture and look at, again, these things that we're often familiar with, but when we just stop and look at them, the impact. Well, then Paul really gets into his message. He says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the gospel of grace unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, 
Again, not long after, in a sense, Paul has been there, these churches have been planted, Paul obviously gets word that these problems are, are occurring. And he marvels that you so soon have been removed. That How is it that you've allowed these things to come when you know so clearly what you were told? There's two Greek words that are used for another here. Um, firstly, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Now that word is the word heteros in the Greek. It means another of a different kind. You see, it's not another gospel. See, the gospel means good news. It is good news that we are saved by grace alone. That's good news, that I don't have to do anything. I can't do anything. That really is good news. But the gospel that was being presented really wasn't good news. It was a different kind. It was a gospel that was saying that you had to do by your works something that would be pleasing to God. That's not good news. It was a different kind. The other word we have, he says, which is not another. And the word that's translated there is alos, meaning of the same kind. It's not another, it's not of the same kind of gospel that Paul had preached to them. And then he speaks of those that have come in to pervert the gospel of Christ. Isn't it sad how often people get drawn away by people that have perverted the gospel of Christ. You see, it's never just the one that's trying to do the damage. There's always casualties. We've seen that here. And I'm sure we'll see it again. I'm sure many churches, I know of other churches, I had a pastor's conference last Saturday. And it was interesting talking to some of the other pastors how similar things have happened in churches around the country in recent months. And there's always somebody that leads others astray. And there's casualties. And Paul here, addressing this problem. There were people that were coming and perverting the gospel. Twisting. Distorting. The idea, the Greek word here, by clever deceivers. Enchanters, bewitchers. People that kind of draw people unto themselves. Paul says, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I say, so say I now again, that if any man preach another gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. I mean, this is Paul, the one who writes this wonderful chapter on love. You see the passion that's coming through here. How important this issue is to Paul. That the gospel is not corrupted. Twice he uses that word anathema. Cut off effectively. It's quite deliberate and extreme statement that Paul uses. He calls down a curse on anyone who proclaims the gospel to them contrary to that which they had received from him. Notice also he mentions that we are an angel from heaven. Now that may seem a strange thing. You know, would an angel from heaven preach another gospel? Well, of course you may remember that Mormonism started out in exactly that way. Apparently, the angel Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith. And that's where the root of Mormonism comes from. Preaching another gospel. 
Paul says, anybody that preaches anything other than the gospel that he presented, which he had received, it's already said to us, from Jesus Christ himself. Anybody that preaches anything else, let them be accursed. Remember again what we're told in Ephesians. For by grace you are saved, through faith, and that none of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Somebody once went up to Chuck Smith and uh, said, oh, um, you know, I haven't seen him for some time. He said, oh, he said, I just, I've got some good news. He said, uh, he said I, I'm now a Mormon. <laughs> and, and Chuck kind of questioned that it was not particularly good news. He said, I don't think that's particularly good. He said, so tell me, he said, what do you have to do to be saved? Well, he said, I just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, and follow the, the teachings of the Mormon church. He said, well... He said, I go along with the first half of that. He said, but the moment you add anything to the gospel, it's not the gospel anymore. It's a perversion. And of course, this is what the cults and all the isms all end up doing. They add something to the gospel. You know, they'll go along so much of what we believe, and yet they add something to it, some work, something you have to do in order to be right with God. See, the reason for God's grace is again, as you said, to bring glory only to God forever and ever. You know, there's no boasting on our part. There should never be. You know, grace excludes all human effort. It's grace plus nothing. And it is offensive. Because we all like to think that we can contribute something. We like to, in a sense, speak of our self-worth. Well. You see, it's one of the oldest heresies that's known. It's still with us today is the adding something to the gospel of grace. As I said, every cult, every ism has added something that you've got to do in order to be saved. You know, that question is very simple. What must I do to be saved? Well, Paul said to the Philippian jailer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's really simple. So simple it could be offensive to people. Just believe. You see, the first and only condition for salvation is faith, believing. It's confirmed in more than 200 verses of scripture. Take John 1.12. But as many as received him to them, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The most famous verse in the Bible. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. I have everlasting life. Isn't it so simple? Just believing. Now, of course, it's not believing that Jesus exists. It's believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And that he died for our sin. And by the way, you'll notice that in these verses, and you can look at hundreds of other verses, it doesn't speak about repentance. Now, need to qualify what that word means because there has been some confusion. Repentance actually means to think differently. And in that context, whenever we believe, we are thinking differently. So yes, it applies. But a lot of people misunderstand. Repentance is not speaking of remorse or contrition for sin. If we add that in as a condition, we make it a false gospel. We are just as guilty as these Judaizers were. Repentance in terms of thinking differently is exactly what we are to do. Because the moment you realise that Jesus is the Saviour, you are thinking differently. 
but to try and get somebody who is not saved to be remorseful for their sin before they have received the Holy Spirit, it's not going to happen. You see, it's the Holy Spirit that brings conviction of sin. Paul tells us in Romans, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You see, that contrition will come. And it's very much like the situation that James speaks of with faith and with works. The faith comes first, and the works is the evidence that the faith is genuine. Well, we believe in Jesus Christ. We are born again. Then will come that contrition at some point. You know, for many of you, when you came to know the Lord, you weren't repentant in the way that so often that word is portrayed. You weren't remorseful. A lot of people, when they come to the Lord, they're full of joy. But as you grow as a Christian, it's been said many times, you know, as you grow in grace, you sin less and repent more. The more you grow as a Christian, the more you become remorseful. The more you become sorrowful for sin and the things you've allowed in your life. As God, by his grace, illuminates those areas in our life that need to change. This verse, Romans 10, 9, 11. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and shall believe in thine heart, God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's as simple as that. May we never confuse or be confused as to the content and the intent of the gospel. The gospel is not to follow Christ and imitate his life, but to receive Christ by faith and allow him to set you free. There's no place in the gospel for a salvation that is attained by keeping the law or by doing anything on our part. And just to highlight again, the gospel of the kingdom, as emphasized from Matthew 3 to Acts 7, is not our message today. The Jews and the disciples were expecting something very different. They were expecting Jesus to come and establish the kingdom there and then. Okay, let's uh, move forward. Paul carries on. For I do not persuade men, or sorry, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. Now once again, Paul is not trying to gain popularity in what he's saying. He's not looking for a vote of confidence from other people. You know, he's he puts his known character behind the assertion that his gospel of grace was a revelation from God. People have known about Paul. They've seen Paul. Paul planted these churches. And he carries on. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, his apostleship had been challenged by false teachers. They questioned his authority, just as happens frequently today to anybody that stands up and preaches the simplicity of the gospel. Because he'd not been ordained by men, as a man has a problem with that. But he was ordained by Jesus Christ, and that's the most important thing, as we said earlier. You know, he had uh, numerous visions of Christ concerning the origin of the Lord's Supper and so on. Again, 1 Corinthians 11, we spoke this morning, I received of the Lord. You see, the Lord gave these incredible revelations to Paul. And his credentials are very clear. You know, he wasn't seeking after popularity. His revelation was directly from Christ. His zeal forsaken for something better. All the passion he had under Judaism is put aside. He preached grace 
before he'd met any of the other apostles, and later, once he then presented to them what he was preaching, they didn't add anything or change anything. They just confirmed that what he was saying was right. They approved and recognized his apostleship. And Peter actually yields to Paul when he's rebuked. We'll see that next week in chapter 2. You see, God, I believe, never meant for Paul to belong to the twelve apostles. You see, their ministry was primarily to the Jews and related to the kingdom. Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles and was related to the mystery of the church, the one body in a sense. The twelve received their call from Christ on earth because their message presents the hope of Israel's earthly kingdom. So I was saying a moment ago. Paul received his call from heaven because his message presented the heavenly calling of the church in Christ. There were twelve apostles associated with the twelve tribes. Jesus speaks of this. Paul was one man. The Jew, the Gentile citizenship, he represented the one body in Christ. It carries on verse 13. If you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. <laughs> this, this conversation just merely means the manner of life. You've heard of the way I lived my life previously. And then he speaks of this Jews' religion. Twice he's going to mention this. We'll see it again in a moment. And it speaks of wasting you know, devastating the church, kind of as a ravening wolf of Benjamin, of the tribe of Benjamin he was, you know, engaged in trying to destroy this fledgling church. You know, Paul would have lived and died as an advocate of Judaism, but for the miracle of grace that he himself received. And he says, and profited in the Jews' religion, above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of all the traditions of my fathers. Paul just speaking here of this religion that he'd been into so passionately he'd been taught by Gamaliel himself he then says but when it pleased God he separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood now first of all he speaks of God who separated just like Jeremiah God's hand was upon him from his birth prepared this ministry that he was going to step into The Lord allowed him to be well-educated. And you know, God allows us to go through things in our life in preparation for things that we may not yet see. And again, Paul, being a Roman citizen, immersed in the Greek culture, so prepared for what God was going to use him for, and yet he hadn't even realized that that was what God was planning all along. See, as I said, God's got a specific purpose for each of us, which can only be fulfilled when we are serving him according to his plan. You know, sometimes like Paul, we may be going off down one road and the Lord will stop us. And we see what the Lord was about with all of the things that we've gone through, the trials and everything else. The other thing I want to just point out here, Paul says that when he received this from the Lord, he didn't confer with flesh and blood. I just like these couple of comments from Oswald Chambers. He says, never ask another person's advice about anything God makes you decide before him. If you ask advice, you're almost, almost always aside with Satan. He says, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Now, be careful. If God speaks to you, don't go and say to somebody else, what do you think? Because God is speaking to you. And that other person probably won't have the same perception that you have listening directly to God. Again, Oswald Chambers says, do not confer with flesh and blood. With every new proposal, the people around us seem to be more and more isolated. And that is where the tension develops. God allows the opinion of his other saints to matter to you. And yet you become less and less certain that others really understand the step you are taking. You have no business trying to find out where God is leading 
Only thing God will explain to you is himself. I love this. It's just, you know, this is the way it is in our lives. If God is leading you and directing you and calling you, just be careful of going and asking somebody else what they think. Why would you ask a man or a human being their opinion if God is speaking to you? Don't confer with flesh and blood. Stay with the Lord. Just speak to the Lord. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. Paul says, I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, we're not told specifically, but I have a hunch that Paul went down to Mount Sinai. Because Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Why else would he go there? Paul went back to the place for him where it all began, the law. And I believe he spent that time alone with the law. And here it's at this place that the Lord reveals to him these things. At the very place the law was given, I believe God reveals grace to Paul. And then eventually Paul returns to Damascus. And then after three years, he went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode within 15 days. Just a short visit. Doesn't see the rest of the disciples. He says, but the other of the apostles saw I none save James, the Lord's brother. So he doesn't come out and make a big thing of introducing himself to the church. He wants to come and just speak to them and say, this is what the Lord has revealed to me. He says, now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. He's telling the truth. Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea which were in Christ. Okay, Paul wasn't idle by the way. He comes back to Tarsus and the surrounding country. He takes up trade as a tent maker. You know, interestingly enough, Paul prior to this had been a member of the Sanhedrin. He then, when he comes back after this, doesn't have a job anymore. And it's in this period of time that he takes up this occupation as a tent maker to provide a way then that he can carry on in ministry for the Lord. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith which once he destroyed. And they glorified God in me. You know, Paul... The Apostle, sorry, recognised that Paul's distinctive ministry being to the Gentiles. The Council of Jerusalem, as we mentioned earlier, confirmed that the Gentiles are not under law. And there's a number of key passages that will confirm this, as we'll pick up from here next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Paul. Lord, this man that didn't care about his own reputation, but cared about the gospel that you had given him to preach. And Lord was so keen to see that gospel not perverted that he writes a letter like this that has become a blessing for so many as we're reminded, Lord, that it's not of our works, but it's by your grace. So Lord, I pray that as we go through this study, you would teach us what it really means to live by grace as well as rejoicing in the fact that we are saved by grace. Well, these things we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen.